Amen. Lord, thank you for the way that we have gotten to spend these last 30 minutes uh, so wonderfully edifying. Thank you for these truths, for this worship, uh, for hearing our prayers, for the scriptures. Thank you. God, we pray that you would work through the preaching of your word now to continue to edify us and also to draw sinners to your son, Jesus, for his glory. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, Please open your Bibles to Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Today we end a short series we've done on biblical anthropology. We've been looking in Genesis 1 through 3, aiming at the question, what is man? Who are we? Uh, If you're visiting with us today, uh, you should know this is not uh, a typical sermon. Usually we preach verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. The last four weeks we've been looking at at these first few chapters of Genesis and drawing out of them uh, what the Bible teaches about who we are, what is man. And we have seen so far that we are created in God's image, we're created body and soul, and we're created good, but are now sinful. And, And if you take any one of those truths away, you have an unbalanced view of humanity that cannot fully explain why we are the way we are, and how we should now live. You have to understand all of those things. Man's dignity as an image bearer, uh, man's dichotomy as body and soul unities, and man's depravity, our inborn inclination to evil. And there's one more layer of understanding we have to add on top of that to build a biblical view of man And it's this, that we were created male and female. Now, I don't think I need to explain to you why it's important for us to talk about this in our day and age. A rejection of the biblical view of man as male and female is, in many ways, the front line of spiritual warfare happening in our society. But I want you to see today That embracing God's design in making you male or female goes way beyond simply disapproving of homosexuality and transgenderism. Those errors are the destructive waterfall at at the end of the river of compromise that our culture has been floating down or rushing down for some time. And so to find God's good design for your manhood and womanhood you need to go way upstream from those issues. You you can be rightly opposed to so-called gay marriage and so-called gender transitioning and still fall far short of God's good intention for making you male or female. It means more. It's better than being right on those issues. The wisdom, the beauty, the glory, the reality of what our genders mean rises so much higher, and we'll try to see some of that drawn from the creation account and lay this foundation for understanding this. And and this will be our approach today. In Genesis 1 through 3, there are three different pairs of words that are used to describe the first two people God made. Male and female, man and woman, Adam and Eve. And these word pairs, the ways they're used in Genesis, 
They give us a basic framework for a biblical view of man as male and female. So that is the first point, male and female, made in God's image. Look, look at Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this making man in God's image, that's the crown of all God's work in creation. And and making us male and female stands in line with God's creative work before. What did God do before verse 26? He's filled his creation with Wonderful, complementary pairs of things and with uh, life-producing powers. So consider first all the pairs God has made. Opposites which highlight the glory of each other. Genesis 1, creation is full of beautiful complementarity. God made the heavens and the earth. He distinguished the light and the darkness. He made day and night. He separated the waters above from those below. He made the seas and the dry land. He made the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. You see, day after day, God chose to create in complementary pairs. And time after time, he saw it and said, that is good. So when God said, let us make man in our image, he made mankind as a beautifully complementarian pair, male and female, and he saw that was very good, he said. Like, like the previous pairs God put in his creation, male and female are, in some ways, opposites, but their differences highlight the glory and the goodness of the other. And because God made this pair in his image, that ultimately highlights the glory and goodness of who God is all the more. So understand, God making us, male and female, it it makes the reflection of God's character shine even brighter from humanity. Having masculine image bearers and feminine image bearers, that causes God's likeness to show up on the earth in ways that are even more prominent and attention-grabbing and joy-producing. Now clearly, and most importantly from these verses, Both males and females are fully made in God's image. And so that means men and women are completely equal in worth, dignity, value, honor, in standing before God. For everything that you might say about the differences between men and women, the most important truths about who men and women are are things that they have in common. Both are made in God's image. Both are given dominion over all the earth. Both are equally capable of of reflecting God's character. Both are equally able of knowing and relating to God as Father. Both are equally entitled to inheriting from Him every blessing that He offers. They're equal in nature, in creation, equal in grace, in salvation, equal in glory in the end. 
But God made two different kinds of full and equal image bearers. And their complementary differences draw attention to fantastic truths about who God is. There are some ways women can image God especially well. There are some ways that men can. If, if ladies will celebrate and cultivate those things that make them unique as godly women, and if men will celebrate and cultivate those things that make them unique as godly men, then God's image will shine more brightly among us. And it will please our Heavenly Father. He will see and think, that is very good. God made us in line with prior creating work, filling creation with complementary pairs, and also filling creation with magnificent life-producing powers. God himself is a fountain of life. And he made a world ready to burst forth with all kinds of new life, fruit and seed and descendants. So, for example, creation day three, verse 11. God said, let the earth sprout plants yielding seed. Hebrew word for descendants. And fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind. Then on day five, God made sea creatures and birds according to their kinds. And in verse 22, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So fill the earth with more life like you. Descendants, be fruitful. Okay, do you see this? He made the earth full of of life-giving powers, plants and animals who were able to fill the earth with their kind. So when God created man, the same wisdom and glory of God is in play. He made us male and female to make us able to make more of us. Now, if I told you where the Hebrew words for male and female come from in verse 27, it would make all of us, all of us blush. I almost blushed saying blush. <laughs> These words at their root, they make uh, abstract reference to the differing anatomy of men and women. And so the Hebrew terms translated here, male and female, it it names humanity's two genders with reference to the biological differences God built into man and woman, namely those that make new life possible. And if I had time to show you how these words come up again later in Genesis, in context, you would see, ah, yeah, those terms do have special Reference to the capacity for having children. And you know what? What does the scripture say? Right after it says male and female, he created them. Verse 28, next line. God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does this not explain in part why God made us male and female, able to be fruitful and multiply together? Now, I realize this may seem incredibly elementary to you. And you may be thinking, Hello, you know, we didn't need a Hebrew word study to tell us that this is why God made us male and female. It's kind of obvious. Agreed. But a big reason that our society has made such a mess of manhood and womanhood 
is because long ago it sidelined the idea that the good design of our genders was for procreation. And the idea even started to spread in our culture that the way to unleash full and free womanhood was to free women from the ability to bear children. And the way to unleash full and free masculinity was to free him from the ability to beget children and the responsibilities that that should bring. And, and really, I won't connect these dots here, but, but you can draw a straight line logically and historically from that kind of uh, anti-procreation thinking to LGBTQ. You can. There's a connection. And, and really, even in the church, I think that, that sometimes we get off track thinking about what biblical manhood and womanhood is by underselling the importance of this just obvious stuff about how and why we're made as male and female. So, so this is a very simple truth, but it's also very important. It's very profound that, that men and boys, what does it mean that God made you male? It means that he made you as a glorious image bearer whose body is ordered towards being a father. And, and women and, and girls, what does it mean God made you a female? It means he made you to be a glorious image bearer whose body is ordered towards being a mother. Now, we know not everyone, not every man will literally become a father in, in the sense of physically having children. Not every woman will literally become a mother in the sense of physically bearing children. And of course, that does not mean they're, they're any less fully male or female. And the New Testament tells us some are called to singleness. The Bible explains that in a fallen world, some married couples will want children very much and not be able to have them. Others, the Lord gives them children and then takes them away. But that doesn't change the purpose of his design in, in making us male and female is to make us potential fathers and mothers. And, and we should add that one does not have to literally bear children to live out some of God's plan for fatherhood and motherhood, right? It is the only thing involved in fatherhood, begetting children, it is the only thing involved in motherhood, bearing children, not in God's design. It's not just about conceiving new image bearers. It's about tending to them and investing in them and caring for them, even after they've reached adulthood in some ways. And remember this, the Bible calls people fathers and mothers who are not literal, physical fathers and mothers. Paul was a father to Timothy to Onesimus, to the whole church of Corinth, to others. And, and Paul wrote about one lady in the church in Rome, and Paul said, she has been a mother to me. And, and the parenting imagery in Scripture, it, it extends even further, uh, even sometimes to how men and women fulfill their calling in the wider society. Judges 5-7 says, Deborah, the judge, she arose as a mother in Israel. So, so here's a takeaway. If God made you male, you should aspire to this. 
to, to love and care for others in ways that are fatherly. In big and small ways, to take responsibility for others when they're in need, to, to exhort and encourage, to, to protect and provide for others in ways appropriate and needed, including spiritually, to, to challenge and help others grow and mature. And if God made you female, you should aspire to this, to love and care for others in ways that are motherly. In big ways and little ways, to, to take responsibility for others when they're in need and to try and impart wisdom and to comfort and encourage and to help others mature and, and flourish and, and to find ways to nurture life, to find ways to nurture eternal life in people, to find ways to nurture the abundant life that Christ gives in people. God says the church should be like a fruitful, loving family. 1 Timothy 5.1 do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. And, and if you're thinking, I have no idea what that might look like for me, or you're thinking, that sounds like it would be really hard for me. Let me, let me encourage you to seek out a, a godly mentor or example uh, to disciple you and help you learn to live this kind of, of fruitful life that embraces the, the meaning, part of the meaning of your God-given maleness or, or femaleness. God is an eternal father, loving his eternal son, and he made us his image bearers capable of loving others like sons and daughters, as fathers and mothers, as sisters and brothers, in various ways, in various spheres. We are male and female. Those aren't the only terms in Genesis applied to the first human couple. They're also called man and woman. That's our next main point. Man and woman, capable of one flesh union. So now turn to Genesis 2. And here the meaning of, of our genders come out even more because we see God did not make man and woman at the same time or even the same way. Verse 7 tells us how God first made the man. Verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. There's the man. Now look down at verse 18. See how he made the woman later. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And, and all of this, all of bringing these animals for Adam to say, well, this is his name, but no, that can't be my helper. This is that's name, but no, that can't be my helper. That builds anticipation for God's creation of the woman. Nothing else in creation could be that fit helper. So look at verse 21, when it happens. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. That sounds great. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs 
and closed up its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There is where we find the second set of terms that describe our first parents, man and woman. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, this is actually a different word for man than, than has been used uh, previously in Genesis. So far, the, the Hebrew word Adam has been used, but here a new word comes in. Adam calls himself Ish to match the name that he gives the woman, Isha. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. And actually, our English terms, again, uh, resonate. It has the same kind of verbal connection. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So in Genesis 1, male and female, the two sexes God made are are named with reference to their um, procreative potential. And now that the two sexes God made are named with reference to each other. Woman, Isha, means from the man. Man, Ish, means related to the woman or something like that. So God made man and woman to complement each other. God designed two sexes who would depend on each other. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. The Holy Spirit draws out this implication of the verses in Genesis we just read. It says, the Lord, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. So, so in God's design, neither man or woman is independent of the other, but they are to be interdependent. Eve was not made as another human being straight from the dust, like a second Adam. No, and Adam recognized it. She was made from some of his own flesh and bone. And that's why they they were so capable of joining back together in a one flesh union. So verse 24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, So because woman was taken out of man when... When, therefore, Adam held fast to Eve and married her, it was was like the reunification of Adam's own flesh and bones. But now, in a way, that Adam wasn't alone. And in a way that he could be fruitful and multiply. God made man and woman capable of one flesh unions. That's marriage. And, And that phrase, one flesh, that refers not only to the union of of their bodies, but the union of their everything. Isaiah 40, all flesh is like grass. It's talking about all, the whole life of man, not just his body. One flesh, one whole life, fully shared by the two. God's design in marriage. And, and the one flesh union of, of the bodies in marriage it is a sign and a seal of this fuller union of all of life. The different bodies God made for them, capable of of coming together in a way that that is meant to help tie all of their lives together. 
in a marriage. But note this. For them to be capable of this union, and, and, and therefore to be capable of, of fully and mutually giving of themselves to the other, a, a couple of things had to be true. They had to be perfectly equal. No lesser creature could have been joined to Adam. And they had to be perfectly complementary. They could not be perfectly the same. Woman was made as a helper fit for man, the verse says. Literally, one corresponding to him, or even one who stands opposite of him. If God just made a duplicate of Adam, that would not be one corresponding to him or opposite him. And so a full one flesh union of, of, of their whole lives would not have been possible. And that's why Romans 1 when it describes homosexuality, it says it's contrary to nature. It's not just contrary to the scriptures, it's contrary to, to nature and how God made us capable of, of um, becoming one flesh, man and woman. God made them, Adam and Eve, perfectly equal and perfectly different in ways that made them just fit for each other and, and able to have a relationship of unrestricted mutual, self-giving, capable of this one flesh union, an all-encompassing interdependent union. That, that's marriage. And so your manhood, your womanhood means, in part, that God made you capable of entering a full one flesh union with a person of the opposite sex. So here is, here's, here's an important extended application of this truth for all of us, not just for married. Your gender is a sign of the reality that God did not make you to live an alone and independent life. He made you for deep interdependence with others and deep fellowship with others, even, even those who never get married or those who are widowed or those who are abandoned. It should pursue deep interdependence and fellowship with other image bearers. Believers are especially called to do this in the body of Christ. And, and though our, our friendships and our family and our neighbor relationships, they, they aren't you know, that kind of unrestricted interdependence and intimacy that defines marriage. They shouldn't be. But, but still, it, it is a fellowship of love that is an experience of the communion that, that God made you for, made you to pursue and enjoy and offer to others. You, you are a man or a woman. You are not some man and woman embodiment of full humanity in your independent self. You're a man or woman signaling God made you to be oriented toward other people. Our genders teach us this, that it's not good for any of us to be alone. Before marriage, after marriage, or even, uh, as is painfully the case sometimes, alone and in marriage. It is good for us to be in interdependent fellowship with others. You get that? The fact that God made two sexes and he made you only one of them means he made you to be relational. And this too is, is 
part of being made in God's image. He eternally exists in the loving fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit. So God made us male and female, oriented towards fatherhood and motherhood. God made us man and woman, oriented towards fellowship and and capable of the full one-flesh union of, of a true marriage. But there's a third set of terms applied to the first humans in Genesis 1 through 3. And this also shows the wisdom of God for our genders. The scripture also names the couple Adam and Eve. And these names have special reference to the distinct callings God gave each. So the third big idea is Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, given distinct callings. Adam means ground, or worker of the ground. His name comes from the Hebrew word for ground, Adama, that's ground. Eve means life, or life giver, mother of the living, uh, Genesis 3.20 says. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And then scripture also emphasizes Adam's connection to, to working the ground. Genesis 3.23, the Lord sent him, Adam, out from Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So, so here's the picture. Adam has a special calling that points back to his roots. He was made from the ground, and, and he has a special calling oriented back to the ground. Work it. And the same is true of Eve. She's made from Adam and has a special calling that's oriented back towards him to, to be his helper and, and to nurture the lives of any children God may give them. So let me show you this in more detail, though. The end of Genesis 2.5. 2.5 introduces the creation of the man, saying, There's no man, no Adam, to work the ground yet. And then Genesis 2-7, God made Adam from the ground. Then verse 8, God himself works the ground. He plants a garden and brings forth trees that are good to eat and nice to look at. And then God tells man, now you carry on that work I started in that garden. Genesis 2-15, I'll read this one. 2-15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Work it. That means cultivate the garden so it continues to produce food and and pleasures. This is a call to provide for all who might live in the garden. And then the command, keep it. That means guard the garden. This, This Hebrew word is translated guard elsewhere. So this is a call to protect the place against all threats to the good of those that might slither in there. So Adam was called to be a provider and a protector, a gardener and a guardian. And God also gave Adam his law concerning life and death, sin and righteousness. Genesis 16, uh, the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat of it you will surely die. God gave Adam this law before Eve was even made. And so we see God holds Adam uniquely responsible when the couple sins against this command. Right? So, so even though Eve ate first, God comes calling Adam to account first. 
And, and get this, both times in chapter 3, when God talks about this command that they have broken, he is speaking singularly to Adam, and he talks about the command as one uniquely given to him. In 3.11, God said to Adam, Have you, singular, eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, singular, not to eat? In 3.17, God said to Adam, You, singular, have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, singular, you shall not eat. And later scripture tells us sin and death enter the world through Adam, that he was especially responsible to lead his family toward living under God's word. So Adam's unique calling, then, let's put it all together. He, he, he was given the primary burden of responsibility as a leader, provider, protector, and steward of God's word. And that, that calling was not unique to him as an individual, but it was unique to him as a man. And the New Testament uh, helps us know this, that the Holy Spirit uses the account of Adam and Eve to explain the roles God gave all of us as men and women. 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11. Genesis 3 highlights how all mankind fell into sin in part due to the failure of Adam to play the man and take responsibility and take initiative and guard the garden from sin and Satan. So verse 6, you'll see this. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. All of a sudden we're like, whoa, Adam's there. Haven't heard from him at all in this story. The whole time he's just standing, he's passively doing nothing. Instead of fighting for God's glory and the good of those under his care, when they're being satanically attacked, a godly man rejects passivity, seeks to lead others in a God-glorifying direction, and does whatever it takes to try and secure the well-being of, of those around him, especially those who are under his care or leadership. And the word calls him to do this sacrificially, to pursue the welfare of these others, even at his own expense, if necessary. So, if we traced, you know, every time that the Bible spoke to men specifically as men, we, we would see some notes that come up repeatedly, things like be strong and, and have courage. But that's not it. Another note that comes up repeatedly is, you love, love. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14 is, is an example of this. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all you do be done in love. See, biblical masculinity is not a, a savage or a selfish strength. It is a strength that is suffused with love, or the strength that is love, maybe you could say. And, and same point, whenever the scripture tells wives to submit to their husbands, the, the command that corresponds to that is not what we might expect, and husbands lead, it's and husbands love. 
Lead with love. So the biblical call of of God to men, it is about strength and courage and providing and protecting, but you should not have some kind of worldly macho man idea about that. King David. King David was the man. He told his son Solomon, show yourself a man in 1 Kings 2. This mattered to him. He, he, He did kill bears and lions as a shepherd. He fought in military battles. But you know what else he did? He spent a lot of time getting really good at playing the harp. And he was called the sweet psalmist of Israel because of how prolific he was in writing poetry. And he did not lift a finger in taking vengeance for himself. He trusted that to God. See, see, true masculine godliness, it looks like Jesus Christ. Right? Banish from your mind this thought that it looks like Genghis Khan or something like that. It, it looks like dying for the sins of the world, not like dominating all the peoples of, of the world. It, it is reaching for a crown of thorns, not, not for a crown of gold. So this, I hope this frees a lot of men in here. Biblical manhood is not about your personality type or muscle mass relative to other men. It's, it's about your character and your heart posture toward others. God made the first man Adam, worker of the ground. He made the first woman Eve with, with a distinct and complementary calling. She was made, verse 18, to be helper, fit for Adam. Her specific calling as a woman who was also a wife was to help her husband. And there is no logical or biblical reason to see any indignity in this calling as a helper. Really, it's only because our our minds have been tainted by the world's love of power that we would see that someone who has authority has more value than someone who is under it. That's a love of power kind of way of thinking. And you know who else is called helper more than anyone else in the Bible? God. The same word here from Genesis 2. It's used in, in the Old Testament many times to refer to God as the helper of his people. You know who else is called helper in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. You know who else is called helper in the Bible? Jesus Christ. It doesn't offend the three persons of the Trinity to be called helper. There's a special divine glory in this calling. Eve helps Adam fulfill his calling, helps him work and keep and garden. And so she is very significantly contributing to providing for for those in the garden and and the welfare of those there. But here's something we need to see. Even after Eve is made to help with these things, still the, the primary burden of responsibility to do that work remains with Adam. How can I say that? Here's how. In Genesis 3, when the Lord pronounces his curse against man's sin, the curse comes against Adam in this as his special calling and against Eve in a calling that's distinct for her. So, so the curse of sin affects them in ways that are appropriate to their distinct gendered callings. Look at verse 317. 317. See how God still addresses Adam is the one to work the ground, the ground and lead in obedience. Verse 17. To Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, 
That is, instead of leading in holiness. And you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So see, sin brought pain to Adam, specifically in his unique calling to work the ground. And sin brought pain to Eve, specifically in her unique calling, in her special relationship to Adam, and in her uh, potential opportunity to bear their children. So verse 16. God doesn't say to the woman, cursed is the ground because of you, thorns and thistles it will bring forth from you. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, so the second part of verse 16, that means that a woman will desire by the taint of sin to cast off her her husband's leadership and will experience difficulty in her marriage as she tries to control him. And the difficulty is double because the husband, because of the taint of sin in his heart, tries to rule over her and exercise leadership in a wrong way that's heavy-handed and is not loving. That's one way sin can destroy a marriage. But but, but the main thing for our present point I want you to see is, is how the Lord brings up the distinct callings of men and women again in the curse. Sin stung the man in his call as a worker of the ground. And sin stung the woman in her call as helper to her husband and her special calling in in bearing and raising in children. That's the first part of verse 16. And then the name that she receives in verse 21, it corresponds also to this calling. She's named Eve because she was a mother of the living. We're we're treading all kinds of non-controversial ground today, aren't we? Adam and Eve are called to rule over the world and fill the world together. But but they they share this great work together as king and queen of creation while they they lean toward different emphases. And throughout Scripture, we see uh, some good works that are especially commended to women are managing a home and bearing and raising children. I I read Titus 2 earlier. Uh, train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. First Timothy 5.14, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households. Proverbs 14.1, the wisest of women builds her house. This is a glorious calling. The, the world is wrong to dishonor it. Don't buy its lie. Remember how the fall happened. And don't go that way over this issue. The way God's word calls women in in some distinctive ways. Don't start believing that that way of God is not good. And so you need to decide for yourself what is good. The end of going that way is not good. Now I also want to caution you. Not to have an overly narrow view about what this has to look like in your life or in the life of other Christian ladies around you. This um, husband helping, 
home management, child rearing. Okay, think of the Proverbs 31 woman. She's doing all kinds of stuff outside of the home. She searches for the best textiles and food from afar. She, She makes and sells profitable merchandise. She does real estate. She considers a field and buys it. She is involved in agriculture. She plants a vineyard. She sews clothes to, to, to clothe her family, to be able to sell things in a business, to give to the poor, all the while somehow providing food for her household. There's a lot of flexibility in what this might look like for a woman to look well to the ways of her household, to major on raising her children if she has them, and to do good to her husband as her helper. Okay, So our goal here is not to try and promote traditional gender roles, but but to promote biblical gender roles. We're not trying to get back to the 1940s. We're trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. Now, now for those of you who aren't married, I I hope that, that you can see how these unique callings God gave Adam and Eve can also apply to your life and relationships as well. And... I leaned on the men in this regard a little bit earlier, but let me say something to Christian women who, who aren't in a season of life or a place where, where they can help and manage a household as a wife, either because you're not married or because your husband won't let you help him and love him in that way. Well, you can still seek to bless others in, in helping and hospitality and need meeting and companionship and in disciple making and disciple raising and you can do do these things in ways that are like a mother or like a sister toward others in in all kinds of contexts in the church your job your neighborhood and beyond all right let me say one more thing before we move on to the next point The, the distinct callings god gave adam and eve they're not arbitrarily assigned So they aren't just freely interchangeable. God equipped man and woman just right for these callings and how he made them different. And, and, And something we call natural law. I don't know if you've heard that phrase. Natural law. Just by what we see in nature, our natures, affirm the wisdom and the goodness of the scriptures about this. It's really amazing the more you consider the, the different bodies God gave to man and woman, the more, the more you hear about studies concerning how even the brains of men and women are different, the more you realize when God gave these distinct callings to men and women, he was not asking them to walk contrary to their natures or even irrespective of them, but in step with them. And that, that's why cultures throughout history who didn't have the scriptures got pretty close to this relationship, though it was, it was grossly distorted by sin, of course. Now, here's the last point, the point of it all, and regrettably, I'll have to make it quick. God made us male and female, man and woman, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, all ultimately to point toward the saving work of Jesus Christ. So the last point is Christ and church, the meaning of the mystery. The book of Ephesians teaches 
When God built Eve and brought her to Adam, the scripture said, Therefore, a man shall leave father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Ephesians says that mystery is profound. And it refers to Christ in the church. It, it did in Genesis 2. So you're living out the specific sex that God created you in. It's about something so much more and something so much greater than just different strengths and weaknesses. It is about the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God made you a man or a woman to, to show off in part his great plan for all of history to give his son a people whom he could save, who would become for him a spotless bride, whom he could lead and provide for and protect and love. The Son of God became flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone, just like us, born of woman, the same way we all were. He became like us so he could die for our sins so that he could present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and blameless. He came like us. He died for us. He rose for us so that you, if you will trust him, along with all others who trust him, are joined to him in a one flesh union by the Spirit, so that all that he is and has, he shares with us. And all that he did counts for us to save us. He gives it to us, and he receives as his own all we are and have. Most significantly, he takes all our sin as if it was his own, pays for it, and gives us all his righteousness so we could be rewarded as if it was our own to become one flesh. And you know, after this short, life is over, and the Bible says it's going to be short, like a mist that disappears in the morning on the lawn, no people will still be married to their earthly spouses. Death does us part. It undoes all earthly marriages. And that's because all these earthly complementarian marriages are just meant like a parable to point to the real thing, the thing that will last, the eternal union of Christ and his church, the people that he has saved. So ultimately, let your maleness, your femaleness, remind you of this, that, that you were made for Jesus Christ. And then go to him to... To receive from him all that he is. To take him as your eternal leader and provider and protector. And more as your God, as your Savior. Father, thank you for that gospel. And I thank you for how you made man, male and female, to be signposts pointing to the saving work of Christ. Even from creation, even from before the fall. You are a great and glorious and gracious God. We praise you for these truths we've looked at. In Jesus' name, amen.